it may not be pretty, it may not be great, but it, it, you're going to be doing it. And I think that's the value in it. And there's so much learning in that. There's so like, dude, I, I still um way too much. And I've done almost a thousand interviews as a host. And like, you know, I, I've lost how many count of how many I did as a guest. Like you got to realize it's not going to be perfect, but you're, you're doing it. You're adding value. You're getting out there. And, and I think that's the real thing you got to look at. Today's episode is brought to you by Bluehost. Bluehost is where I host dozens of my websites and it's the best solution for new websites. Don't break the bank with the bells, whistles, and fees that you just don't need. Get the plan that's right for you today at thirdmaster.com front slash blue. Are you tired of dealing with your boss? Do you feel underpaid and underappreciated? If you want to make it online, fire your boss and start living your retirement dreams now, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Serve No Master Podcast, where you'll learn how to open new revenue streams and make money while you sleep. Presented live from a tropical island in the South Pacific by best-selling author, Jonathan Green. Now, here's your host. Today, we're going to learn about the power of PR and how you can use it to accelerate your business with very special guest, Jeremy Slate. Jeremy, I'm so excited to have you on this episode. Welcome, and thank you for coming to the Serve No Master Podcast. Hey man, I'm I'm really excited to be here and and excited to to talk about you know podcasting and PR today because I feel like it's the thing that can help a lot of people go from you know where they are to to where they want to go. So thanks for having me, man. Yeah, this is a topic near and dear to my heart because I've been messing around with this podcast for five or six years now, and I've tried different formats. And the thing I've found is that there's a couple of people that just really do really really well with it, and there's a lot of people that do like six episodes, eight episodes, and quit. Yep. So I'd like to talk about that first hump. How can people stick with it past that six to eight episode limit? And what's causing people to quit? Are they expecting a result too soon? Or are they all making a similar mistake? I think, frankly, like it's, it's expectations to start out with, because I think a lot of people like, do you remember, I'm dating myself by saying this, but there's this like, this is like back in like 07, there's this South Park episode. And this is back when like YouTube got like super popular. And Cartman thought like you just make a YouTube video and you get the magical internet money. Um, like people have the same idea on podcasting, right? They think that like, they're going to start a show. Everybody wants to listen to them. And you know, that may be true that people may in the future, but like for most of us, you you have to be willing to commit to a year, sometimes a year and a half to, to really make it a success. So I think they don't come into it with the right expectations. They come into it thinking it's going to be the thing that moves the needle right now and which it may be, but it's going to take time. So you have to be willing to build an audience. You have to be willing to create value and do it for some period of time. I know even for myself, like, and, and, and I'd love your viewpoint on this, is it took me a long time to feel like I was good as a host. And I think that's also part of what allows people to, to listen to you more than five or six episodes. Yeah, so I started off differently. I started off doing a solo podcast. I did 150 episodes, five episodes a week wow. for about a year and a half before I burned out. I just couldn't do it because I couldn't do that much audio content. It's so much content to be putting out about 25 minutes a day, five days a week. It's just added up, added up. That's like almost three hours of content that I would record, mm-hmm. edit it down. And then switching to the interview format, I think there's this trick. It's like, or this catch 22, it feels like it's either I, can, I can't get the guest who can set, bring me new people, or I can get the guest who nobody wants to see anyways. And that's, I think, what holds a lot of people back. You don't know who's going to say yes. And you don't really know the right format. So those are the two formats I've played played around with. I do think that, and this is something that my friend Jordan has a huge podcast, huge, huge, huge podcast. And he interviews like celebrities and presidential candidates, all these people, his friends are like late night show hosts. That's his like circle of friends now because he's living that LA life. And he was talking about 
the biggest mistake you can make as a new podcaster is like to get that huge interview at the beginning when you don't know what you're doing yet. Like, yeah, your your dad's friends with Chuck Norris, you get them for your first episode, and it's such a waste because you haven't built that skill set that it does take a long time to develop. So I think you're absolutely right. Well, it's it's being willing to screw up, man. Like, you know what I mean? Like you you have to like and, and at the same time, like one of the things I've tried to do is like look at other people that interview well and see what they do. Like, you know, frankly, Oprah is an incredible interviewer. If you look at some of the things she does, like it's about making a safe space for your guests. It's about asking the right questions. It's about getting them really comfortable so they want to communicate with you. And, you know, realizing that the questions you may have written don't have a ton written, right? Other Some people over-prepare, you know, have three to five ready to go where you want to go, but then realize it's the follow-up questions that matter the most. So asking good follow-up questions and just looking at other people that interview, man. Like it's, it's don't look at other podcasters if you want to learn how to interview well. Look at people that have been doing this for a really long time. I think that there's something a lot of people don't realize is that if you're watching a late night TV show interview or a high level podcast interview, there's a massive amount of research that happens beforehand. Yeah. No, that's so, huge. Like I just interviewed a guy about John McAfee, which it was the most wild thing I've ever read this book. And I told the, told the author afterwards, like, I think I am more confused than before I read the book. But the thing, the thing I found is like when you come into that level of preparation, you have insight and you have things you can talk about and think and, and whatever if you haven't re- read the book. Not that it's, it's easy to do, right? Like it's a lot of time and commitment and whatever, but it changes the game on how you interview. Yeah. And the other thing is, and is that you can end up asking questions that everyone else asks. And so you end yeah. up just giving a repeat interview. And that's the other challenge is someone's like, oh, people always ask me that. Mm-hmm. And when you get that great interview is you ask the question that no one else has asked. And so I think there's a couple of things. And I think that the only way to find that, in my opinion, like you said, is just to do it a lot, is to watch people that do a lot of interviews and then to just practice a lot. And that's why it's okay to start with smaller people. Like I'm the same thing. I, you know, I'm building out this new interview format. And so instead of focusing on the biggest gets I can get, like just saying, who can I get with the biggest traffic? I'm just focused on trying to get people that I think are interesting, that I think my audience would be interesting. Because something that can happen is an example is my friend, he interviewed Gary Vaynerchuk when he had no audience, right? Mm -hmm. But that was like 10 or 12 years ago. And so sometimes people are small when you start, but they get huge. And then those people go and find that old interview you have. So there's like this permanent value and there's a lot of value in getting people. It's a lot easier to get someone 10 years ago than when they're now when they're super famous. So I think there is a lot to be said for like being willing to figure it out and being willing to make mistakes. And you can always edit the episode or take down an episode if it goes really bad. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've had some that were rough. I'm, I'm sure you have as well. Like I had a guest on one time and there's like an airplane behind him. I'm like, come on, dude, can we handle that? Like, you know, you got to be cool with like, you know, making some mistakes. It's, it's vital to growing. How do you feel about people that do their podcast live? Like another podcaster I know I've been talking to a lot. He does five episodes a week with like news anchors and that type of people a lot or someone with a book and he's doing five a day and he's like, oh, I record it live, stream it live, edit it in less than 30 minutes and throw it onto my channel. And he's got a massive following. And to me, that like sounds like amazing. It looks like a live radio show, right? Like you make no mistakes, yeah. you need no edits. I don't know if I could do that. It's so I know my, my friend Eric, he's like blown up his YouTube channel doing this. Like he'll, he'll like streams all of them live to YouTube and it's really, really worked for him for growing an audience. But I know for me, like, you know, I grew up like listening to Paul Harvey and like stuff like that on the radio. Like I like the magic of something that's been created and, and shaped and fashioned. So I, I don't like the idea of doing it live because I feel like at the same time, guests show up differently live than when they show up to hang out with you. I don't know if you found that like. 
I find that they're, they show up slightly different and a little bit more chilled out when they know it's going to be edited and whatever. So I feel like you get a more real conversation. So like I said, I've seen it work for growth, but at the same time, I just, I prefer doing it the other way because I really feel like I'm creating something. Okay. So going back to where we were started out, someone starting out, they've heard some ideas from us. They're thinking of launching their podcast. What's the best format for a beginner? I know there's like all these different formats, whether it's a comedy podcast or an interview podcast or a solo podcast. What are some things they need to put in place in addition to their expectations to start the podcast off on the right foot? Well, I, I think first and foremost, interview formats are just easier. Like, like frankly, like I know you mentioned you did something that was like your own content pre-written for like hundreds of episodes, which dude, that's that takes a lot of work. People don't realize the amount of prep work that goes into creating a 25-minute interview. Like there's a lot of work that goes into that. So to me, I think interviews are easier, but like you said, it's it's a good idea to start a little bit smaller where you don't have a ton of chops and be willing to do 100, 200 interviews to get your feet under you and really feel like you know, you're doing well with that. So I would say that. And I'd say number two, like realizing audio and video do matter. You know, a few years ago, it was it was a lot more audio only podcast. Now we're going towards more people using video. So I would say having good video setups matter, you know, get yourself a, a good, good webcam if your computer camera sucks or, or something like that. And you know, you don't have to have like a, a big studio mic like I do. This is a sure SM7B, but you can get a, a you know, nice audio technica, like ATR 2100, it's like 60 bucks, and it's going to sound good. But you have to realize those are two big barriers to people being able to listen to you is good audio and video quality. Like those are important. You don't have to have like a studio quality show, but those are really important. And I think, as I said, interviewing is a great way to start because content driven episodes, man, they're hard because they take a lot of writing, a lot of format. And I don't know, like first time I did a solo episode, man, I sounded weird. I sounded uncomfortable. And those can be hard to, to listen to as well. So how long... Like, should someone wait to expect something to happen? Like, I know with SEO, they say, oh, you should start to see results in six months. And with TikTok, they're like, you should have a following in a week. So what? how should someone calibrate their expectations so that they're, they know if something's wrong at a certain point or they're not jumping to the gun too soon? What's that right like time frame? So with my show, we saw success pretty early, but this was in 2015, right? So we're in a, we're in a different world seven years ago. Like we saw uh, 10,000 listens in our first month and I was like, nobody, nobody knew who I was. So I think expectations are a little bit different now. I would say, you know, by three to six months, if you're not starting to see some of what you want, as I said, be willing to be this in for a year, but three to six months in that range, if you're not starting to see some things that you can work on, adjust, start getting some feedback, you know, I would really take a look at your plan and how you're reaching people. But you should start to really get some feedback pretty quickly, frankly. So three to six months, I think if you're not seeing what you want, it'd be a good time to start you know, making some change, but do not quit this before a year. You're not going to see what you want. And what about episode frequency? I've really changed my opinion on this. And, I, and I'd, love to, I'd love to hear your thoughts too. Like when I started out, man, I was doing seven days a week. And what I found is, frankly, the episode started to suck after a while, right? Because it's like, you have to do so many, you become like an episode machine. And the quality of them goes down, the, the content value goes down. We went down to five episodes a week, like three years ago. And then now I only do two a week, but they're good quality episodes that I'm really concentrating on interviews. I think if you're doing one a week, it's just not enough to build up that critical mass. But I think with two a week, it's that balance between good content, you know, something well created and valuable to people, but you're giving people more of an ability to build a listening habit and giving people more of an opportunity to find you. So I'm, I think two a week is kind of that sweet spot, at least what I found through all the years of different numbers of interviews. 
And that's really interesting to me because I'm figuring that out right now as I'm kind of relaunching this format. You're kind of the third interview in this new format where I'm figuring out how fast are your releases. I'm kind of stockpiling before we start releasing. Like I was just a guest on a podcast last week. They're like, oh, we're going to lose the episode in like 12 weeks. I was like, oh, you guys are so ahead of schedule. That's great. That's a long time. So yeah, I've seen other shows. You know, I'm friends with Chris Voss. His podcast is really big and he does five episodes a week. He does the live episodes. He's like, oh, you got, if you don't do five, no one's ever going to find you. But I think part of it as well is if it's your only thing. I put yes. out so much content every week. It's that balance of I have to shoot a YouTube video. I have to shoot a bunch of short form videos. I put out so much content across my channels. I have to write several hundred emails, all these things. It's like, how much can I do? I think that frequency is so important. The one thing I do think is that you have to choose a pace you can maintain. If you can't do five a week and you're going to burn out after three months, do less. Like that's definitely mm -hmm. true because there's nothing worse than like, I expect a podcast episode to come out every noon on Friday. If I'm there at noon and there's not a new episode out, I'm like, what happened here? Like, it's such a thing. <laughs> and I remember in high school, <laughs> it's, I, I, I was putting in a, I was putting in a, I was putting in a floor at my father-in-law's house yesterday. I was putting in a hardwood floor and I had this one episode podcast I've listened to since literally 2007 called the No Agenda Show. It's uh, Adam Curry. It's a really entertaining podcast. And around three o'clock on Sundays is usually when it gets uploaded. And I'm like pulling down the swipe down to get it to upload and, and or get it to, to reload. And I'm like, come on, guys, where's the podcast? I agree with you, man. Like you're, I'm waiting for that to be there on a Sunday afternoon. And when I was in high school, I remember the X-Files was like Friday night television. And so I'd come home, I'd watch it. It was like the spooky Friday night. And then they moved it to Sunday nights and like the ratings went just down. Like they just tanked because moving it, right? It moved it away from that expectation. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like when you move a show around, you change the day of the week, it can kill that show, right? Like you go, oh, this isn't performing well enough on Thursday. We'll move it to Tuesday and then it just dies. Because that expectation, we expect that regularity. It's like if the newspaper gets delivered late for people to still get a newspaper. So I do think, I think that's interesting. Now I'm like, oh man, I need to do two a week. I need to push that. So I think the biggest thing to me, I think, is having a process. The thing I've learned growing my business more than anything else is you have to have a process. And so we've been doing a lot of work in our project management software, ClickUp, like planning out how we're going to recruit guests, how many can have in the queue, how do we know where it's in the process, what we need. So we can't publish an episode until we have the mini clips and social media stuff to send to the guests if they want to share it so that we can go, oh, if you want to share, here's a great clip of you looking amazing without it being that hard pressure. And all of that has to be ready like a week before you email the guests. So that's part of what we're working on is our process. But I think a lot of it is people are afraid of outreach and they don't know how to calibrate. And the only way yeah. to learn is to do it a lot. My business is like 90, 95% outreach based. That's how I meet people. We do a lot of cold emails. And what I look at is if I send the email, I get a certain response rate. If my team sends the same email, it's about half that rate. Mm -hmm. So rather than like put pressure on them, I'm like, well, just email twice as many people. And so this is for some of the other things in our business. So it's the same thing. And the other thing about podcasts is most people will say yes. They don't check. Like when I'm on someone else's show, I don't look to see like how popular the podcast is or not. I don't have time to do that. If my team, mm -hmm. like I was on a podcast last week, my team goes, these guys are cool. Be on their podcast. I go, okay. I don't know anything else. And most guests, you know, we don't do that. We don't you know, unless you're at, I guess, the highest level. But I know that one of my followers reached out to someone like a scientist he really looked up to. And the scientist was like, I'd love to be on your show. And he was like, what, what do I do? I didn't expect a yes on the first ask. So I think that you'll be amazed how many people say yes. 
And it's a lot of it is the way you ask. And maybe you can talk about that because you're really an expert at outreach and getting amazing guests and reaching to amazing people. What's the right way to approach someone versus the wrong way? So you were talking about outreach. And, and so here's the interesting thing I found. I had a booker for years and we'd get some cool guests and it was great. Do you know what I found, frankly? Number one, I found Twitter is the best tool to use for guest outreach. I've had so much more success DMing people on Twitter. But number two, I found that when I reach out to my guests myself, I get like 80% of the ones I want just by reaching out myself. And I don't spend a ton of time on it. I spend an hour every couple of weeks. And I have a very particular reason that I reach out to them about what I want to talk about. You know what I mean? Like I find when you're ambiguous about what you want to discuss, it can be hard to actually get that interview. So you reach out to them, you tell them exactly what you want to cover, why you want to cover it, and why this is the right format and forum to do it. And you've had a, I've had a lot of success doing that, frankly. That's interesting. I think that in my experience, the most important thing is to let the person know you know who they are. So I don't know if this happens to you, but I get a lot of automated emails from <laughs> SEO companies or from people that will help me learn how to make products. I was like, what's my area of expertise? Like, that's the craziest one I get. And things like that. And you can tell, or people who offer to give me a free blog post, and they feel so automated and so impersonal. Like, they don't know the name of my book. They don't know anything about yep. me. They just go like, dear owner of website. And I know that's the worst way to do it. So I think that, yes, yeah, something in the message that says, I actually know who you are and I'm asking you for a reason other than I think you have something I want, but I don't even know what it is. No, I think that's vital. It really is. Like, and like, cause as I said, when I'm reaching out to somebody, it's usually like, I want their opinion on X, Y, Z. So it's like, I've read their book or I've watched an interview with them or I've, I've followed them for a really long time. Like for here, here's an example. I'm a Yankees fan and my favorite player for years was Nick Swisher. You know, he wasn't the greatest player out there. He was a good player, but he, I was a huge Nick Swisher fan. So I sent him an Instagram DM video about, number one, wearing my Nick Switcher jersey, about how excited I would be to have him on the podcast, you know, why his career mattered so much to me and then what I wanted to talk about. And it was an instant yes. And I, and I think those are some of the things to, to think about is like, number one, it's relevant, but also at the same time, how has their content, what they've done, what they've achieved, how has it mattered to you? And I think that's really, really important. What percentage of the messages that you send are video? Very small percentage, actually. It's a very small percentage. It's usually like Twitter DMs, as long as their DMs are open. So so what I'll do is if their DMs are open, I'll shoot them a message that way. And it's usually a text message, which is like to the point of, you know, why their work matters to me, what I want to discuss and how long it's going to be. Because when you think about busy people, those are the things they need to know to make a decision. You know, like, what do you want to discuss? Why does it matter? How long is it going to be? Where is it going to be? So those are things that like I really try to handle right off the bat. Now, if it's somebody that it's a very particular message I want to send, like it was with Nick Swisher, I'll send video, but it's, it's probably less than 10% of my messages are video. Okay. Cause I often hear like, there's always this new video tech sending video emails. And that's been, I've been hearing about tech like this since I started 12 years ago, full time. And someone actually, I just got my first video message last week that was personal. Normally what they do is they say my name in the email and then they send me to a video that doesn't have my name. And I go, oh, they're sending this to everyone. <laughs> but last week, someone sent me one where they said my name and stuff, and they were talking about specific things. And I was, I really responded. It was someone I'm already friends with, but I very much responded to. I was like, oh, this is very interesting to do it this way, to actually not use it for mass marketing, which doesn't feel very good because you can tell it's a trick. So I mm -hmm. think that's very interesting. And it is interesting as well because everyone has their communication channel. Some people only do email. Some people only do Instagram. Some people only do Twitter. 
And so find, meeting people where they are, I think that's a really, really good idea. Now, yeah. should someone who's starting to, they go, okay, I want to start my podcast next week. You guys got me excited. Should they start chasing that big guest? Like how should they start their initial process? Like, is it okay to just get anyone who will say yes at first and start there? Or should they start out with a certain level of outreach? Like what's that right baseline? You know, it's it's interesting because as you and I like already spoke about, I think it's good to get your feet under you by like kind of being okay with messing up a little bit. But I think at the same time, like it's a good idea to shoot big. Like I shot big right out of the gate and I, I had some email exchanges with some cool people. Like the first person I reached out to was Seth Godin and, and Seth was super cool. He's like, no, when you get to 400, let me know. He was episode 400. But like, you know, you have to be willing to to kind of, you know, do that and put yourself out there because I think some people won't take the risk. So I'm kind of like, I don't know, man, I'm torn because I, I know for myself, I took some big shots in the dark right away and I, and I had some luck and we kind of figured it out. But I do think you need to get some experience under you. So I, I think it's a balance of, and this is a really bad answer, so I apologize, but like it's a balance of like shooting big, but at the same time realizing you got to get your feet under you. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a hard balance, but like at least that's how I did it. And how do you think your interview would have been different with Seth if it had been your first episode instead of your fourth hundredth? It probably wouldn't have been very good, frankly. Like those first twenty, I can't even listen to, and and they're just they're just bad. My my wife always reminds me all the words I repeated. She's like, "Stop saying awesome every other word. Like it's really bad. Like it's bad." So like, I think it wouldn't have been the interview it was, and also at the same time, like how I research changed, how I interview changed, like a lot of who I was as a host changed. So I don't think it would have been, you know, the interview that it was. And it was a really great interview. We talked about, you know, the future of work and being an entrepreneur versus being like a freelancer and things like that. So I think there's a lot of value in getting your feet under you. But at the same time, I think some people use that to say they're never ready. And I think that's the tough part. You're just making me think of all the things I say that I edit out. So I have like this <laughs> list of words that I can't stop myself, that I have a list that my editor knows if I say this. Big one is and so. I hate when I say that. Yeah. I want to say it now because I just planted the seed. It's like a big, it's my main transition word. And so there it is. I'm always like, delete it, delete it, delete it. Because, and I don't know if other people notice it, right? It becomes the thing that's your thing. And I have a couple of other words like that. And when the pauses are too long, I'm like, don't leave too long pauses. People will think that the, <laughs> the player's broken, especially if sometimes I have like a two minute pause on my solo episodes where I'm thinking of what I want to talk about next. So yeah. it, it is that thing the balance of what you worry about versus what other people worry about like when i shoot a video i have a second camera over here when i'm shooting my youtube videos and i'm always thinking does the angle from the side look terrible but when i watch other people's videos they do it all the time that's why i have it but i think that look i look terrible from that mm -hmm. angle. well i think a lot of times we're our own worst critic man like we're our own worst critic and i think sometimes like that can be the thing that actually keeps us from getting started when it's realizing like it may not be pretty, it may not be great, but it, it, you're going to be doing it. And I think that's the value in it. And there's so much learning in that. There's so like, dude, I, I still um way too much. And I've done almost a thousand interviews as a host. And like, you know, I, I've lost how many count of how many I did as a guest. Like you got to realize it's not going to be perfect, but you're, you're doing it. You're adding value. You're getting out there. And, and I think that's the real thing you got to look at. That's why I like to pre-record so I can go and delete the ums, the ansos, any of those other words, that gives you that ability. That gives me that freedom. I go, oh, I can always remove it. I expect to make mistakes. I think that there's a powerful lesson that I learned is that we often compare our backstage to people's front stage. Like all yes. I see if I'm watching your podcast is the polished edited stuff, right? I'm not seeing what was before, what was after, the glitches, the tech stuff. People who see this episode, they're not going to see 
that we had a problem with your camera at first, we had to change a setting. I'm not going to publish yeah. that part, right? When we do it, we look at other people's stuff. We go, it seems like they're never worried. They're never worried about money. They're never worried about guests. They're never those things. But that's their stage presence. Mm-hmm. There's this entire thing that we put out into the world, especially when our lives are kind of our brand. That's not exactly reality. Like it's a more polished version of yourself. Like I've shot in, I've shot video when I'm really sick. I hide it. I don't want to tell everyone, hey guys, I'm trying not to throw up. Like you don't say that. So they never know. And so they go, wow, Jonathan never gets sick. <laughs> well, and, and, at this, and at the same time, like it's like, I don't think we always talk about like the stuff we do to get through an interview, right? When I get a big interview, man, I still get stressed as hell and I go for a walk because I know it'll calm me down. But we, we don't really talk about those things because we, you know, we want it to look good. We want people to have the perception and you have to realize like it's, it's not always pretty. Like I, I had David Petraeus on a couple of years ago. He's a former CIA director. And dude, I was so nervous. I went for a walk and I was kind of like, you know, still kind of shaking when I, when I hit record on the thing. And then eventually we chilled out because he was a cool guy. But you, you have to be, you know, it's, you got to realize it's not perfect. It's just, we are people. We do what we do to make it work. I was doing an interview last year with Ryan Levesque, who's a marketer I really look up to, runs a Fortune 500 company. And in the interview, he said, I can tell from someone's questions how intelligent they are. And for the rest of the interview, that's all I could think about. I was like, am I asking stupid questions? Am I asking stupid questions? And I got so, I got so paranoid about it. It was like the ultimate seed. I was like, this is the most, every time I get interviewed, I'm going to start saying that to people because it just puts you in control. It totally got in the back of my head. Of course, I'm trying not to show it on screen, but that's yeah. a really powerful thing to say. It definitely is. And, and I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I would say that now because I don't want to scare people. Like, you know what I mean? Like that, I could see that puts you in a really weird spot at the same time though. I think like just really listening to somebody at the same time makes them, makes them feel like you're asking better questions too. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, because so many hosts don't listen because they're ready for that next question. I usually keep a pad next to me so I can get rid of the thought so I can remember to ask it. You know what I mean? Because you try to concentrate on that thought and you stop listening. That's really good. My interview technique is that, as you know, when I, and this is something that someone else taught me, when I book a guest, I'll say to them, hey, can you send me a list of the six or seven questions you really want me to ask? And usually I ask one of them, but it gives me like a line of, oh, this is the, the road they want to go down. And that tells me a lot. They give me a lot of baseline. So I kind of get a sense of what they want to talk about. And what I do is I call it chasing the interesting. Because if something's interesting to me, it's probably interesting to my audience. Yes. So whenever I'm, I have to really engage with you and I'm really listening to what you said, I'm going, what's the most interesting thing to me in the last thing you said? And that's what I want to build on top of. And I find for me, at least... I'm really afraid. One of my greatest fears is to be boring. I think being called boring is like the ultimate insult. So I'm afraid of that. So I'm always chasing the interesting. It's the opposite of the spectrum. So I think, what's the most interesting thing you said? That's what I want to talk more about. That's what I want to dive into. Rather than, it's very hard for me to just follow a set of questions because I'm like, oh, this question is what they want me to ask. This is what I want to ask. because This is really exciting for me. That's how I create the interesting for my audience. And my audience is mostly like me. Like That's how people find me is they like that style. So that's what drives me because when people are just reading from a script, it does feel weird. <laughs> like you might as well just send me the list and have me pre-record my answers. Yeah. It, it's interesting too. Cause like one of the things I do, and this, this may sound weird, but like I usually pre-write like three to five of the questions, like realizing like, Hey, I'm going to use these three to five and these are important. And then the follow-ups where it goes. But one of the things that I do is I'll find an interview they did with somebody I admire less for the answers they give, but more for their style of communication. 
because I want to understand like, okay, do I have to supply a better question because they're like a yes, no person? You know, what do you think about bank? Yes, no, yes, no. So do I have to ask a better question that has kind of more in it that's going to make them answer better? Are they somebody that answers way too long? So my questions have to be more concise. Are they someone that is too contemplative when I ask a question? So these are things like you need to know, like do they do long pauses? So as an interviewer, these are all things I need to know and how I'm going to not just format my questions, but also how I'm going to ask them and how I'm going to communicate to them in the interview. Like to me, that's actually really vital. That's really, really good advice because I think a lot of people, we're trying to do that bare minimum. We're so busy. and we're, Sometimes I've been on interviews where people forget my name or don't know how they met me. I, this happens to me all the time. I'm very forgetful of who people are. I've been on a podcast before that was my second time on the podcast. And the guy said that and I was like, I couldn't even, in my head, I'm like, I've met you before. I have this <laughs> software that I use to help me remember people. So what I have to do right after this interview is go into the software and it's just to help me remember things and write down what we talked about and what the podcast was about. Because the content will go out and when you message me again in two months, I don't want to forget who you are. So I can look up yep. your name and look up your email. That's really critical. So knowing you have a weakness and I'm not ashamed of it because I guess a lot of people have stuff like this. I just thought of it like six months ago. I heard about something. I said, oh, that's so useful to me. I've tried these memory systems where you have to remember like an axe going in someone's head if their name is Hatchet. I don't know anyone named Hatchet, so I don't know why that's the first thing they taught me. But I think that it is going a little bit the extra mile, learning a little bit about the someone. Because sometimes people ask questions that are like really crazy. Like there's this, maybe not crazy is the right word, but there's this saying for lawyers, don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. Yep. And I saw someone on TV one time interview someone or they're talking to someone in the interview asking questions. And he talks to this lady and he says, oh, where are you from? And she goes, New Orleans. He goes, how's your family in Katrina? And she goes, two of them died. That's why you don't ask that question. <laughs> That's a really bad question to ask. How's your mom? She died five years ago. Oh, okay. Sorry, man. That one can be unexpected, but asking about a natural disaster. And look, I was in a natural disaster. I was in a tier one natural disaster as bad as it gets. Yeah. Like Katrina, except for I was in a wooden house with a straw ha a roof. I don't like to talk about it. Okay. And we can get into the whole thing about how men don't talk about their emotions, which is a whole thing. It's hard to talk about that stuff. But when it comes up and it came out on the last podcast I was being interviewed on, I was like, I have to talk about it because it's a huge thing. And I get that, but I don't like talking about it. I understand people not wanting to talk about their bad stuff. And I'm not that format of podcast, right? Like this isn't a hard hitting podcast. Like mm -hmm. I remember one time someone was asking a John Stewart, why don't you ask hard hitting questions when you have someone on your show? He's like, I follow puppets who do crank calls. <laughs> Comedy Central, like, I thought it was such a good answer. It's like, you're a 24-hour news channel. You should ask the hard-hitting questions. I'm definitely on a comedy channel. And that calibrates you. So I look for a sense of rapport with my guests. I only interview people that I like. Like, I would never finish it. If I hated you, this wouldn't still be happening. I would shut it down. Because I've been on calls before. I was on a call with someone about a year ago who made me hate him in about seven minutes. And I was like, this is very impressive. I said, I want you to know that that's the fastest anyone's ever done that to me. And my wife knows I'm sour. My natural instinct is to not meet new people. Like I am not friendly. I'm past that phase. I'm past 40 where I'm like, I don't want to meet new people. I only meet people through work because that's my job. And I like meeting people there. I don't have any friends in our neighborhood. Like we got invited to a party at the neighbor's house like two weeks ago. And we went and it was kind of fun. But we left. We're the first ones to leave. We haven't been invited back since. So... Well, uh I'll tell you what, man, 
I, I'm very quick to abandon ship on a, a conversation that like makes me feel bad about myself. Like I, I had talked to a guy, and this is also like when I'm looking at like clients we want to bring on board, right? Like if they make me feel bad or, or one of my salespeople feel bad in the sales process, even if I take their money, like they're gonna be like a wrecking ball to my company. And that's something to be thinking about. Like, like I had a call with this guy and he was willing to pay me in full for our services. But his opinion of PR agencies was they're all criminals, none of them get a product, they all suck. And I may not like you and I may ask you for a refund in six months. I'm like, wow, man, that's all great stuff. I'm sorry to hear that. So I don't think we're a good fit for each other. I wish you the best of luck. I mean, here's a couple agencies you can give a call, but it's not going to be us. Sometimes you got to be okay with that and, and like realize, you know, like when people are making you feel bad about yourself and their communication, that's one of the first indicators of me like we shouldn't be working together. Yeah. Anytime someone mentions the worst case scenario or them betraying you, like asking for a refund or saying, oh, I can always charge back on day 179. If you know that and that's something you're thinking about, that's not my culture. Like I don't yes. do a lot of refunding, that kind of thing. Like that's not how I approach business and life. And anytime, it's kind of like when you start a relationship and the first thing you say is, well, like how are we going to divide our CDs if we break up? That's not a first date conversation, but that's kind of the same thing you're talking about there. It I think is. That's really yeah. good because a lot of the time, especially if we think you're here and your guest is here or like the client, whatever, you will act in a different way because you are looking up the mountain at them, whether they're on a pedestal or they're just more successful than you. And it can cause you to act in a different way than if it's a guest you don't care about. Like, have you ever met someone who's a celebrity and you didn't know who they were? And so you acted really normal. There it is. And everyone else is acting really weird but you're acting so normal. So that allows you to have a much better conversation. That happens to me a lot, actually, because <laughs> I'm not somebody that knows pop culture and I've met a decent amount of celebrities and I'm just somebody that like, likes to talk to people. I'm like, hey, man, how's it going? Like, you know what I mean? I've been in those conversations a lot and then not realize people are famous. And then after the fact, they're like, hey, that was blow. I'm like, I don't watch TV. I have, I have no idea. <laughs> that shows us that it's not the famous person. It's the way we act towards them. Oh yeah. When people meet me, they sometimes act that way to me. Like I'm a little bit famous. I have a best-selling book doing this for 12 years. I have a little bit of following every once in a while. Someone meets me in person who already knows who I am. And I can tell because they do things that are strange. They act like, I guess the best way to say is they act like I'm more famous than I am. And we, yeah. I don't know what the level of famous word act, but they act like I've had someone bow to me one time. He's like, Oh, I'm so sorry to start being bowed and backed away. And I was like, that's cool once because I definitely want to say someone bowed to me one time. But I was really bored. This is the crazy part. I was super bored. The person I was there with at the bar that I had met someone and walked off, I was alone for the next 45 minutes. Like, what's that guy and walked away? Like he had a golden opportunity. Like there's nothing better than meeting your hero when they're bored because that's when they're the most open. Mm -hmm. But that is a critical lesson is that it's not them, it's you. And so when you act strange, whether it's someone you want that client, you want to close the deal, you start making promises you shouldn't make or that guest you want to get. So what are some red flags someone should look for either in their behavior or the guest behavior to know that something's going wrong and how can they kind of deal with that? Well, first part is I have to handle the bow thing because that's, that's kind of funny. Like in my head, when you said that, the thing that came to mind was me is the guy with the American flag pants in Napoleon Dynamite that's going, bow to your sensei. But anyway, I, please tell me you've seen that movie. He's like, and I'm famous because I go home to whatever the wife's name was every night. Bow to your sensei. Anyway, when it's not going well, I've actually stopped an interview before and like been like, hey, is everything okay? Like, do you need to handle something? You know, like what's happening? And, and like, not like I do that a lot, but I have done that before and it's handled the situation. 
you know, there was one time, as I, I mentioned earlier, the guy with the, with the airplanes in the background, this is a very memorable one for me because I actually stopped the interview and didn't finish the interview because he was just kind of a jerk and he's kind of famous. So I'm not going to talk about him like by name. I just don't think that's cool to badmouth people. But like, you know, I was like, one of the things I would do is I would ask people like, where can they find you? And this guy like literally said, Google me. And I'm like, come on, man. Like, like this is about like adding value. So to me, it's number one, like, as you mentioned, a lot of how we react to the situation is a lot of what creates the situation. So I take a look at like, okay, so what am I doing in this situation that's causing this or how can I improve it? Or if it just literally seems like just something's wrong with the guests, I'll stop and talk to them. Like I found like, you know, people had family things happening or they actually wanted to reschedule, but they felt bad about my time and, and whatever it may be. So it's, it's number one, if it really is the guest and it's obvious it's the guest, figure out what's happening and if they need something. Like, it'd be cool with it if they need help or if they need to change the time or whatever it is. And the other thing is, like, if it's you projecting whatever's happening with you, then take a look at how you can handle it. You know, I think that's the, the other thing. So let's say you're having an interview and it's going really well, but you kind of feel like you've gone off track. Like, you're just talking about random stuff and you feel like there's no more direction anymore. What's the best way to bring it back? Like, what's the way to go? Oh, something's distracted. Well, there's something inside you, like you said, you're having a distraction or the other person's distracted. What's a way to bring it kind of back on track to the destination you're trying to drive to? I'm bad at this. I obviously just go like, well, getting back to blah, you know, or as we were discussing in blah, like I find a point where there's like a good point to like do that and bring them back. And sometimes it's something they mention. Like, oh, yeah, you were saying blah. Well, actually, we were, we were discussing blah. So I want to take a look at that again. Or, you know, let's kind of get back to. So I, I, I guess I and I sound like those are my rote responses because they are. But like, that's typically how I handle it is a host. You got to realize when it's going on too long and when you can redirect and, and kind of don't make them wrong on that. It, like laughing it off is kind of funny as well. Like, hey, yeah, I get it. OK, but like getting back to where we were, you know, we were discussing blah, 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 blah. And you had just said blah. So I really wanted to know, blah, do you know what I'm saying? It's like kind of bringing them back to the, the place where you are and just doing it obviously, frankly. So to bring it back to what we were kind of driving towards is I know you have a new book coming out, Unremarkable to Extraordinary. Can you tell me a little bit about where that book came from and how that ties into everything we've been talking about? Yeah. So when I started the podcast on day one, it was with the goal of actually writing a book and and the the thing I always did is I always told myself the timing wasn't right, it wasn't ready and, and whatever it may be. And if I finally got to the point where I felt like I could do this, and that was in 2019, I started writing it. And then 2020 happened, which is why the book is not out until, you know, June of this year, because being 2022, because life happened, you know, my dad got COVID, like it was a really kind of tough period of time. So like, I stopped writing three separate times. You know, I had, a, I had my second daughter in that period of time. So it was it was tough in actually getting through the process. But in terms of like, you know, where the, the idea came from is I, I've realized that all of us start out unremarkable, right? We're, we're all just people. Some of us start out with a little bit more. Some of us start out with a little bit less. Some of us, you know, have more privilege. Some of us have less privilege, but we're, we're essentially unremarkable. And it's the things that we do that make us extraordinary. And when I've looked at different people, I've looked at people that I've interviewed. I've looked at people I haven't interviewed that I've really admired, like like uh, Tom Brady, somebody I've really looked at. You know, he barely started in in high school, barely started in college, wouldn't have started in the NFL if if the quarterback ahead of him didn't get hurt. But he showed up every day, worked his butt off, always improved every day, and put himself in position that when things went right, things were going to go really right for him. And I found that to be very interesting with a lot of people I've talked to is they're very consistent. They're not willing to shy away from hard work, but at the same time, 
there's there's some other important things about them. Like, you know, they're they're you know, not willing to not do what they want to do because of the opinions of others. And I find too often we will live our lives for people that aren't willing to die for us. And you have to realize that, you know, unless somebody else is really willing to give their life for you, then their opinion doesn't mean a heck of a hill of beans to where you're going in life. So to me, I think there's these tried and true things that can help someone become the best version of themselves. And 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 that's where my book Unremarkable from Extraordinary came to. And, and you know, it's coming out on June 7th, available for pre-order right now. And we're just really excited to get it out there, man. I think that's a really good message. A lot well, of times you. other people give us bad advice. One of the things I have learned is when someone gives me advice, I ask them, well, have you done it? Like if someone tells me, <laughs> don't go swimming out there, it's really dangerous. I go, have you been swimming out there? Have you ever started your own business? The number of people, especially for entrepreneurs, they'll tell you, don't start your own business, it won't work. And I say, well, how many of your own businesses did you start? And they're like, none, I've never done it. I'm like, well, then I shouldn't take advice from you. Like someone reached out to me for marriage advice when I'd only been married for about two years. I said, how long have you been married? They go, 11 years. I go, why are you asking me? I don't know how to be married for 11 years. I can tell you I'd be married for two years. That's all I know about. We look for this advice. We take advice from people that have no idea what they're talking about. And there's this effect like the whisper effect, if we hear the same advice three or four times, even though it's a rumor repeating in a circle, we think it's new information and confirmation, which we see all the time on the news, right? One news, like, I can't believe now you can report on something someone said on Twitter. To me, that's like reporting what someone wrote in the bathroom. Like, it's not real. Like, it's not the real person's name. It's not, that's not evidence, right? I grew up right. with scientific methods, but to me, but that's can really affect us. So I think that's really powerful. And what I always see, I think about this is someone says, oh, they're an overnight success. It's absolutely true as long Not as you true. count the 10 years of preparation. <laughs> exactly. Like all the hard work before. <laughs> if you completely discount all of the hard work, yeah, they are totally lucky. If you erase everything, you very rarely find people that succeed having done nothing intentional. That's Forrest Gump. Like that's a fictional movie. Every single person, like I have a friend from high school, he won the Super Bowl and he wasn't the best player in high school. I remember one time we were in the gym. I have two strong memories of him. One time was he was defending me because people making fun of me for being fat in the gym. He's like, at least he's here. None of the other nerds are here even trying. And I was like, I guess that's a compliment. And then the second thing he said was he goes, I'm not the best player right now. I'm not the biggest guy here. He goes, but I've got the longest bones. I'm going to keep getting stronger as I get older. And I was like 17 and he won the Super Bowl. Like he was on a winning Super Bowl team. It was amazing to have that vision. So he was willing to stay the course because there were so many guys in my high school who we all thought would go pro. We're one of the top high school teams in the country, like a number eight, number seven, that kind of team. But he was the one guy who made it through and he had that vision. So, and this ties back into what we've been talking about. It's like starting a podcast. Most people quit after eight episodes. Yeah. Like everyone thinks that for me, it's always been a success. I'll tell you about my book. My big book came out 2016. I got a review a week before it was coming out. They were like, I, I don't think you want me to post this review because your book is trash. <laughs> I was on the floor crying. So I really like, it was really devastating to me to get like a really bad review. I'm lying there on the floor. I'm like, I got two choices. I can pull the book. I can just give up. I can let go or whatever, or I can rewrite the book over the next like 72 hours, push out a new edition. Now I got in trouble for that. You're not supposed to rewrite the book the week before when you've done pre-release. If you do that, Amazon bans you from doing a pre-release again for a year. I was like, oh, it's shoot. worth it. Because <laughs> they go, no, you can't tell us that like the day before, but I pushed out the new version. I send it back to that person. They're like, oh, it's still pretty terrible. I was like, oh man, okay. Now I know it's you, not me. Because that book has 505 star reviews. A massive has turned my business around. But you're going to have those moments 
where bad things happen. That's why I really like the book Black Swan, where he says, bad things are going to happen. I don't know what they are, but unpredictable bad things are going to happen. Something happens in real estate about every 10 years. Mm-hmm. Just like the savings and loan scandal, and then it's the next scandal, and then it was the 2008 thing. And then this time, I guess it was the pandemic messed up all the real estate stuff. And people bring him on the news all the time. They go, you predicted this. He goes, I didn't predict this. <laughs> I just know bad stuff happens. Bad stuff is inevitable. And that's, it kind of ties back to what we're talking about, about people we look after, we think nothing bad happens to them, but it's not true. Mm-hmm. It's not that nothing bad will happen to you. It's how you adapt to the situation or how you react to it. That's the thing you're in control of. You can't affect because bad things are going to happen. Yeah. Friends are going to say something bad to you. You're going to be in a natural disaster like I was. No control over that. All I control is how we react to it, how we survive, and how we live afterwards, and how we live every day differently afterwards. That's what you can do, and that's where the power is. And the cool thing about that is anybody can do that. Yes. I've seen people who've had these terrible childhoods, and it makes them into the most successful. I have a friend who's a lawyer. His childhood, his like child abuse stories are insane. They're insane. He was like four. He walked himself into the ER, and the doctors go, well, you should be dead. And he's now like... I can't even say what he does for a career because people know who he is instantly. He's that successful. And he's completely motivated by vengeance. He's like, I want to become the most successful person in the world to get vengeance against my dad who abused me as a child. So the craziest things can motivate you. And it's it's a very sad story. Like breaks my heart, but wow, what a, you know, so many people say, oh, I have a bad childhood. So that justifies inaction. So it's not the thing in my experience. It's how we react to it. Jonathan, that was a whole podcast, man, because those were so many good points in that section. Like, I, I literally am in my head. I'm making a list of each thing I want to say to like what you said, because there's literally three things that you said there that are just like, damn, man. Like the first is like, I want to touch on the last thing you said there. Like, you know, he says he wants to be the most successful person in the world because of what happened to him. Like, dude, there is no better revenge than to flourish and prosper. There's no better revenge than to, you know, do the best you can do and be the best you can be. Because you know what? people that hurt us, people that are mean to us. They want to see us fail. They want to see our lives ruined. And you know what? Your best vengeance is succeeding. And I think that is the greatest thing you can ever do to somebody to make them wrong. Sorry, as as much as that is, is to do well and to do great in life. So that's one thing. The other thing that you mentioned about is you mentioned about the friend that, you know, didn't know, you know, in, in high school, he said, you know, wasn't the best and things like that. I think it's interesting, and he won the Super Bowl. I think it's interesting if, as I would love to see, like a study of first round picks in all major sports. Because if you look at the number of first round picks that are just total busts, because they think they're the best, they know they're the best. And when you think you're the best and when you know you're the best, you don't work hard anymore. You don't put in the work. You don't show up. You don't have that learner's mentality. And that's really vital. And you know, the other thing too, is you talk about being overnight success, man, like internet marketing lies to us. And people just think that everybody's going to hit a home run on the first time up. It's about hard work day after day after day. And it's just, you know, that, that's what it's about, man. Yeah, I think that's so true. Consistency is, in my experience, the thing that everyone who succeeded has in common. Though the people that go to practice earlier stay the latest, They're the people that put in the most hours, the people work consistently. Because it's very easy to work really hard for two days and work a bunch on a project. But gosh, the number of people who, yeah, they give up because they don't get those results soon enough. Like I started out, when I started out in, my, in this business with a lot of people that had a lot more heat than me. I really struggled for the first about year, two years of building my business. Like I lived in my mom's basement for a year and then I lived on my friend's couch in a studio apartment for another year and a half. It was two years before I could afford rent on a two-bedroom apartment with that same friend. Mm-hmm. But people think 
that there's no hard times. Yes. That's the problem with what we project is that you have to get up early. You have to stay up late. You have to do those other things. And this has been, this is a lesson I learned in my twenties when I realized I was like, I'm not very good looking. Okay. I'm a ray. I'm in the middle of the road at best, or I'm ugly at worst. Depends who I'm talking to. Nobody ever says, wow, you're super handsome. But I realized if I start earliest, plan the soonest and put the most effort into every person I meet, that's how I met my wife. Because I'm, everyone's like, oh, you met her tonight. I'm like, no, I was planning for this for two weeks. And it's that preparation. <laughs> I said, oh, I don't have these other things, but I can out prepare anyone. Yes. Like when I'm getting dressed to go out, not anymore. Now I don't care because I'm so married. But I used to spend two hours like planning the outfit, putting everything together, getting myself in the mood because I have to compete with people that are richer than me, smarter than me, taller than me, better looking than me. But preparation can beat all of that in every area of business. It's the person who's most prepared and is most consistent can really succeed. I think that's a really powerful lesson. And that's why podcasting is, can be such a cool thing. It's got to stick with it. If yeah. you do nine episodes, you beat out most people. And like Seth Godin said to you and Chris Foss said to me, he's like, I don't do anyone unless they've got 200 episodes because they don't want to be on a, a podcast that doesn't go anywhere. Correct. And that makes sense to me. They don't want to do, they don't want to be episode seven when you quit on episode eight because then it is a waste of their time. So knowing people go the distance and that's the only thing a lot of people look for. They don't even look for if your podcast is any good. They look for if you're still doing it, if you're still fighting, still putting in the effort. So I think that's a really powerful lesson to end on. I think people should really check out your book. Where's the best place people find you online? They can find your book. Again, it's called Unremarkable to Extraordinary. We'll of course put a link to it in the show notes. Where's the best place to find you online? Which of your many websites is the one they should go to? So if they're interested on like the podcast side of things, it's over at jeremyryanslate.com. The company side is at commandyourbrand.com. And as you mentioned, the book is coming out on June 7th. So right now we are in pre-order. They can get it either on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, or anywhere books are sold. Well, that's amazing. That's been a really great episode. Thank you so much for being here. And the last thing I could ask you is if there's one piece of advice you could give yourself when you were starting like a really long time ago, what would that be? The beginning, younger version of yourself, what would you tell them? Let it get ugly faster. I don't know. Like, like to me, that would be it. Like, I think sometimes we like want everything to be perfect and that's the reason we don't start and it's the reason we don't go where we want to go. You know, be willing to screw it up. Be willing to, to screw it up more often because the more you do, the closer you get to winning. So to me, that's what I would tell myself. That's amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Appreciate having you on another amazing episode of the Serve to Master podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me, man. Thanks for listening to today's very special episode. There is nothing more valuable to your business than your mailing list. This is where I make the majority of my income and allows me to speak to my followers every day. Let me accelerate your growth with my 100% free guide, List Building Turbo, at servemaster.com forward slash turbo.